If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open them to the book of Hosea this morning in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, just go to the table of contents at the front and, uh, and look it up. It'll be right near the end of the Old Testament. Open your Bible in half and take a right and you'll get there. Um, little book tucked away near the end of the Old Testament that's broken really into two sections. The first few chapters, uh, three chapters, and into the fourth tell, uh, tell a story. And then four through fourteen illustrate that story with the life of the nation of Israel. If you, if you wanted to, if you, were, if you were God or a master storyteller uh, this morning, you, you wanted to communicate uh, a really big idea, uh, how, would you, how would you do it? If you were God and you wanted to try to summarize the extent of love for fallen humanity, what he's doing in the world, how would you, how would you tell that? I mean, it, you could, because you're God, right? You could devise a crazy, crazy systematic theology textbook, right? Uh, with a list of about nine billion points that describe the fallenness of humanity, the nature and character of God, and the way that he orchestrates salvation. I mean, we could have a bullet point list that could go on for all eternity, or you could tell a story. Stories, for all of us, capture our hearts in quite unique ways. We're, we're a storied people. In oral cultures like the nation of Israel, this would have been quite common. You wouldn't have read a bullet point list anyway. But even in our modern society, you don't, you don't typically remember tweets. You don't remember code and uh, sad for me. You don't remember most sermons that I preach. But you do remember stories. So if you were going to tell a story to describe how God loves his people, what story would you tell? Perhaps the story that would come to mind, you would tell the story of a, of a prison inmate who murdered his best friend in a fit of rage, and who, upon release from prison, begins the work of rebuilding his life, his love for others, and cares meaningfully for the needs of the world. Maybe that, that would be the story of the way God loves people. Or perhaps you'd tell the story of a rebellious teenager whose parents said all along, here's what you should do and here's what you shouldn't do, and that kid just would not listen. After years of rebellion, this kid chooses to get his act together and do the things that they said he should do all along. Maybe that would be the, the story of the good news. Or perhaps you'd tell the story of a family living in Sin City who had ample access to all the pleasures of the world and yet chose to avoid these sins and live a good, upstanding life. Maybe that would be the story of the Christian gospel. Interestingly, none of these are the stories that Jesus told. To summarize the good news message of all the scriptures, to put, as it were, to put the message of the Bible in a sponge and squeeze it and let one drop of a story fall out, he's not going to tell those three stories. He's going to tell one like this one, recorded in the book of Hosea. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the Lord spoke through Hosea, verse 2. The Lord said to Hosea. So, so central figure of the book is Hosea. If you've got your timelines that we gave out of the outset, you'll see this is a prophet from the northern kingdom. In contrast to the other prophets of this time, he has pretty long ministry. 
about 25 years, preaching to his homeland. Uh, He addresses them during uh, the latter portion of the reign that we read about last week of Jeroboam, who has led the nation of Israel during a time of uh, prosperity and relative peace. But as his reign comes to an end, the nation begins to, to unravel. Internal instability, uh, the typical royal court dynamics play out, uh, all types of infighting and assassination and uh, wild, adulterous relationships. Hosea is watching at a distance the revival of uh, the Assyrian army, who is clearly rising to power and threatening the Israelites and their place in the land. At this point during the nation of Israel, what what Israel is doing to survive is just consistently entering into these wild-flung peace treaties, uh, clamoring, as it were, to, to survive, to hold on to any sense of the land and of power that they once had. But by Hosea's writing, it's clear that the nation is going to be destroyed. All the handwriting is on the wall. And here is Hosea's assignment Verse 2, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. (laughs) And you think you've had a bad day, right? Um, I mean, imagine the mission conference that Hosea attends. So we're going around the circle at introduction time. So uh, where are you going and what are you going to do? I'm going to be a missionary in this far flung land. I'm going to tell these people about the gospel. Uh, I'm going to marry a prostitute and have prostitutes' babies. Um, this is not a good, a good assignment. We, we do have a soft spot in our hearts for stories of redemption. Uh, the former drug addict who builds a healthy family, or the family that's torn apart by adultery who puts it back together again, but this isn't the story that's going to be told. Hosea's assignment is is far starker than these kind of stories of redemption. He's not a messed up dude that's committed all kinds of sins that's somehow going to put it back together again. In fact, the emphasis on this story is not on the broken person who gets their act together, but rather it's on Hosea. In fact, the outcome of this little drama in the first few chapters isn't all that clear. We're not exactly sure what happens at the end of the story. Does the the marriage take effect? Does it dwell in peace and prosperity and faithfulness? All we know at the outset, the scene is set. Go go take a a wife who's currently living a life of open sexual sin and do the unthinkable. You marry her, have sex with her, and have her kids. This woman um, isn't simply an outcast and one that you just by your own human revulsion is not the kind of person that you would pursue. But rather, according to the Old Testament law, this is the kind of woman that should have been stoned. So Deuteronomy 20, 20, uh, I'm sorry, 22, 20. But if this charge is true, the charge of marital unfaithfulness, um, sexual immorality outside of marriage, that the girl was not found a virgin, they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, And the men of the city shall stone her to death because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from you. This is a common refrain in the Old Testament. Get the the evil out. Purge the evil from you. 
So according to Old Testament law, not only don't you clearly don't marry this lady, but actually you, you kill her. Now, the arguments are made often in, in the writing that uh, this, is, this is a lady who is going to become unfaithful after they're, they're married. I don't know that that changes the discussion all that much, because even if that were true, you don't typically go out and marry someone that God has said is going to be unfaithful to you on the backside of the marriage. So whether she's currently living a life of open sexual sin or God tells her she's going to as soon as they get married, it doesn't change the discussion all that much. If I had to cast my vote on the subject, I would say she's already a prostitute. That seems the most natural reading of the text, and I think it paints the most compelling picture for what God's trying to communicate through this passage. His love for his people that we'll see as the story goes on. So, he went and took Gomer, again, a quite unfortunate name, uh, the son of Diblom, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the, for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her, call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more, so I, I'm sorry, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. I, for, I will forgive them, I will, to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said to him, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. All right, so let's set up our cast of characters here. We got uh, the prostitute, either currently a prostitute or soon to be a prostitute, Gomer, and three kids, Jezreel, which means God scatters, no mercy, and not my people. Now, if you're scrolling through the Google pages of the Israelite baby naming books, I am certain that none of these three are on the list, right? They didn't top the charts this year nor last year. You're not calling your kids, God scatters, no mercy, and not my people. It's clear that, that God's up to something with this little story, right? Not just witnessing a typical drama. God scatters, a clear picture of the coming exile when God will do what he said he's going to do to the nations. He's going to kick them off the land. No mercy. Quite an astounding statement for God who excels in loving kindness to his people. And then, not my people. This latter phrase, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God, is the exact opposite of the claim that's made throughout the scriptures, where God most famously says about the people, you will be my people, and I will be your God. Here, you will not be my people, and I will not be your God. Then look in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Upon her children also, I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my other lovers. 
who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So we're given a little sense here, as it were, uh, of, of the, the insight of this lady, what, what she after. She says, I'm going to go after these other lovers because they give me something immediate. They, they provide for my immediate needs. They give me bread and water, wool and flax, my oil and my drink. So though I have a loving husband who has pursued me, I'm going to pursue these immediate sources of temporary fulfillment. This passage brings to mind a very familiar passage from Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, where the Lord, in stark condemnation of the nations, of the nation of Israel, says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no waters. So the, the dual evils that are committed here by the people in their sin, they've forsaken the Lord, the source of love, fulfillment, joy, relationship. And they've dug their own cisterns, which incidentally can't provide. They can't provide. So God says in Hosea 2, beginning in verse 6, Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. And she did not now that it was I who gave her grain and wine and oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool, my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will punish her for the feast of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry and went after her other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, interestingly, note, note the contrast here. She says she's going after these other lovers. Why? Because they give her bread and oil and wool and flax and all of these things. And then notice what God says in here. What pronoun does he apply to all those things? He said, they're actually mine. You thought they were coming from these other lovers, but the things that you got were actually gifts of mine. So this temporary fulfillment that you were getting, this daily provision, this good bread for today, you think you're getting it from your other lovers, but you're actually getting it from me. So to convince you of the futility of these other lovers, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take that back. I'm going to withhold it. I'm not going to give the bread and the wine. I'm going to cut them off. I'll take away my wool and my flax, which you're using to cover your, your nakedness. You thought you were getting these things from these other lovers, but they're actually coming from God. And so to convince you to return back to your former husband, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut them off. 
This is very similar to a passage in Haggai 1 that we'll study in six weeks or so, where God says, you're out pursuing your own pleasures. You've come back at this point. The nation of Israel has been kicked off the land. Temple's destroyed. God raises up Cyrus, who allows the people to come back and start rebuilding the temple. Thirteen years later, they've laid the foundation and done nothing else. And God calls them out in Haggai 1 and says, Is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while my house lies desolate? To teach you that you don't pursue your own stuff and allow my stuff just to lie desolate? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call for a drought on the land. You're going to hunger and thirst because you're going to bring stuff home, and God says, and I'm going to blow it away. In fact, you're going to put stuff in a purse that you've gained, and it's going to be a purse with holes in the bottom of it. It's just going to fall out on the backside. Now notice this. The fact that God does this is a demonstration of his great love. Because God loves us, he allows us to see the futility of our false loves, and this often is really, really painful. But it is the demonstration of God's love. So, to show Gomer that first husband is really where her identity, love, joy, fulfillment, relationship is found, God's going to make all these things come up empty over and over again. And this is the cycle of human existence. Because God loves you, he is going to allow your broken cisterns to come up dry over and over again. And incidentally, this is not just something that happens at the, the moment that you become Christian, right? So probably for you, you're going to recount in your mind, when I first trusted Christ, something happened in my life. A lot of folks are going to say something like, I hit bottom. I came to the end of myself. I was in inner turmoil. I couldn't figure out. I I, something was messed up, and I had to seek God. It was like he drew me to himself. Right. And then God's going to continue that process for the rest of your life. He's going to continue to allow your broken cisterns to come up dry so that you seek him, continue to allow another one to come up dry so that you seek him. And this is God's great, great love. How does, how does God then say he responds to this Gomer who, from what we can tell from the scriptures, sees this husband from afar, but we're not exactly sure what the relationship looks like on the back end. The, the best sense we have is at the outset of chapter 3, where again, we're not told the story from the perspective of Gomer, but rather from the perspective of Hosea. And the Lord said to me again, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. That seems so cryptic, right? The cakes of raisins, all right? This is uh, an Old Testament image for sexual fertility, uh, thought to be an aphrodisiac to stimulate sexual desire. He says, you love all of these other things other than me. This is what the nation is like. And so, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. Though this woman continues 
She was a prostitute in my estimation when you married her, and she continues to dabble in this sin, continues to forsake you for these other lovers. You go again and love this woman. Imagine, just on a surface level, let's not over-spiritualize the story for a second. Imagine the level of commitment it takes to pursue this. In our divorce-happy and litigious uh, society, imagine the forgiveness that has to be given to once again open your heart to love and pursue this lady. Yet this is the way God says he loves his people. Don't miss this. The story, the drip of the sponge of the gospel that God chooses to tell is not of somebody that gets their act together, puts the pieces together, and returns back to God a good little boy or girl, but rather a persistently unfaithful woman who God lavishes pursuit and grace upon. He says, the end of verse 10, our hint of this, of chapter 1, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, shall be said to them, your children of the living God. What, what God, you just said you're not going to be their God and you're not going to be their, their people. And here you say at the outset, yet, though I'm going to say that temporarily now to make sure they know that these temporary lovers are not fulfilling, ultimately, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to do what I said I would do to Abraham so long ago, and I'm going to make the descendants of Israel like the sand of the sea that can't be measured or numbered. How am I going to do that? Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. I'm sorry, verse 14. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there shall she, she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever." I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and I shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. How does God respond? God's response is like Hosea. 
Notice what he does. He calls. He calls to the wayward and unfaithful. In these words dripping of romantic attraction, he says, I'll allure her. I'll speak tenderly to her. This is not the words of a vindictive cop in heaven out to get you. But to a persistently unfaithful people, he says, I'm going to draw you. I'm going to call you out tenderly. Then I'm going to cleanse. I'm going to do the work to remove the bales from your life. I'm going to take out the unfaithfulness. Because of, three, because of my commitment. I'm making a covenant with you, and I'm going to fulfill my promises to you, not because you're good enough or because you earned it, but simply because I'm faithful to my word. God's, you may have heard it said that, uh, that marriage is a 50-50 relationship, right? Marriage is a picture of God's love for the church, therefore marriage is a 50-50 deal. I do my part, she does her part, we all live happily ever after. I've got a leaky love tank, she pours in enough love, she's got a leaky love tank, she pours in enough love, and everybody lives ha- happily ever after. Horrific picture of the way the gospel works. It's not the way the the gospel works. The gospel is 100% whatever kind of love. The gospel is 100% whatever kind of love. It's a, I'm faithful to you by virtue of my covenant commitment to you, and even when you're not faithful to me, I'm still going to pursue you in faithfulness. This is the way God loves his people. This is the good news of the gospel. God is faithful to us to pursue us in our sin, not because of anything inherent to us, but simply because of his character. He's a faithful, pursuing God. And then he says, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to pursue you, and I'm going to keep you in faithfulness, and I'm going to bless you. The new wine and the oil, these things that you've been looking for, you're going to get, but you're going to get them from me. Here's the drip of the gospel. Here's what God does to persistently sinful people like you and me. He calls, he cleanses, he commits, he keeps, he blesses. Praise God. He calls, he keeps, he commits, he blesses. This is what God does. Now, chapters 4 through 14 of the book of Hosea tell the same story through the eyes of the nation of Israel. God says, just, you remember what I just did with Hosea? That dude got a raw deal. He had a terrible mission. But I wanted to put on display that I call, I cleanse, I commit, I keep, I bless. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to do the same thing for the nation of Israel. I'm going to love you in your rebellion. I'm going to love you enough to punish you, show you the futility of these false lovers, but I'm going to bring you back to myself. I'm going to restore you into right relationship with me. Now, it's easy for us to think at the outset that this is just something that God did for the nation of Israel. He was showing off how good he was to these people, yet we have throughout the scriptures reminders that this is exactly what God did to all of us who are in Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Romans 5, 8, what? Christ loved us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, because of his great love and mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Both to those who are not yet Christians, struggling to understand what is the message of the Christian gospel, and to those of us who are already Christians and yet struggle with our sin, We need to be reminded that God is a God who calls, cleanses, commits, blesses, and keeps. And in light of that, how do we respond? 
Well, clearly, the, the, the driving response for Gomer in the book of Hosea is to return to her husband. It's to return to the one who, who loves her. The, the question of a preceding generation, when you were doing the, the pen uh, proselytizing, when you were sharing the gospel, based on, uh, I believe it was Campus Crusade, who uh, composed a little track called The Four Spiritual Laws. And one of the opening lead-in questions to that is, uh, if you were to die today, do you know where you would spend eternity? Or perhaps, uh, if you were standing before God today, and he were to ask, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Uh, These questions, while compelling to many, are not really the questions that most people are asking today. Most people aren't even considering what eternal destiny looks like. They're grappling for things like love, peace, and hope in this life. And sadly, we believe, our fallen minds believe, that God can't provide those things. We believe, in contrast to love, that God's a God of judgment. In contrast to peace, that God's a God of work. And in contrast to hope, that coming to God is going to be a God of guilt. But the picture we see in Hosea is a God of love, a marriage relationship restored, a right relationship with God, even for those who've committed heinous sins. Peace of an undivided heart, not torn between two lovers. And hope that in spite of you, in spite of the mess that you've made of your life, you can be made right with God. And let me suggest to you, if you're here this morning, everyone who is here this morning is going to pursue love, peace, and hope through some outlet. Whether you're a believer or not this morning, you're going to run after those things. You're going to do it through relationships. You're going to do it through work. You're going to do it through some self-help measure. Or you're going to do it through religion thinking that if I just get my act together in these areas, then I'm going to find the love, peace, and hope that I long for. And when those things don't work, we pursue them in addiction. Just get out. Sadly, we run to other things when the gospel provides the very things that our hearts most desire. As Augustine most famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. In his masterful book, The Confessions, where Augustine, probably the the greatest Christian leader, second to Paul, the world's ever seen, grappling with this frustrating immaturity in his heart. Why can't I do the things that I want to do? Why do I still run to these sins? And in this book, that if you haven't read and you're a believer, I commend it to you. It requires some work. It's a hard read, but it's a beautiful testimony to the temptation that we all face to run after false lovers and Augustine's aha moment that says, none of those things provide the rest that I can find in you, God. You provide them. So, if you're not in Christ, it's the message of this book. It's to return to God who created you, who loves you. If you're living a life of known sin, it's to return to God who isn't going to heap shame and guilt, but rather receive you back into right relationship. Secondly, the response is to worship. I mean, the marriage stories of the Old Testament are not all that flattering to you and I. 
Ruth, Gomer. They are all stories of unworthy recipients of God's grace. Perhaps the most challenging part of this process, as we read this story, is how little Gomer does throughout the process. In fact, everything we see and read about her is unfaithfulness. I mean, the story would be really good if on the back end of the story we read, Gomer figured it out. She got her act together. She, she cleaned up. She returned back home. Everything was really good. She made three meals a day, lived, cared for Hosea, had little kid Gomers, and all was well. That is not the story. We don't see that. All we see is Hosea pursuing her in, her, in love. It's a very unflattering statement about humanity and our sinfulness. But a right understanding of that unflattering statement of our sinfulness prompts worship from you and I. I mean, we, 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 we're not here this morning because we got our act together, because we're better boys and girls than people out there somewhere. We're here this morning because God and his grace lavished love and mercy on us while we were still in our sin, not just past tense, but present tense, while we're still in our sin today. This should evoke just worship. And then, and then thirdly, it should drive us to reflect this kind of love to one another. If our marriages and our earthly relationships are meant to be a reflection of the type of love that God has for his people, then we must radically rethink the nature of forgiveness and the love that we show to brothers and sisters in Christ, to our spouses, to our children. This type of love is impossible apart from God's Spirit, but empowered by God's Spirit. It should be normative for those who are in Christ. Uh, Matthew 18, classic passage on marriage and divorce. Uh, people are questioning uh, Jesus about what camp does he fall in? Does he allow divorce? Does he allow remarriage? And then Peter, kind of on the back end of this um, uh, passage, uh, where he's also talked about uh, what do I do if my brother sins against me? How should I love him? Peter comes up to him in uh, Matthew eighteen twenty one, and said, uh, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him. So a little bit of a cryptic way to ask this, the, this, uh, the question. He's, how, how often do I forgive my brother when he sins? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times. It's 77, or seven times 70 times. It seems that uh, in ancient Jewish culture, they, they had a three-strike-and-you're-out rule on forgiveness. The thought was, after the third time, the person's proven unlovable, and you are free to distance yourself from relationship with them. And so Peter's very statement turns up the temperature on forgiveness. He says, all right, God, I got you figured out. You really like this grace thing. So we're going to say, we're going to go above and beyond. We're actually going to go to the number of perfection. Three times, three structure out, no. We're going to go to seven. I'm going to forgive someone seven times when they sin against me. And Jesus says, you've just scratched the surface of the appearance of the way that I love. My love is like 70 times seven. It's like so far away. So before you are quick to write somebody off who has 
hurt you or wounded you, before you are prone to do unto others as they have done unto you, we should be the type of people in the church who forgive an infinite amount of times because that's the amount of times that God has forgiven us in Christ. And that type of love is a compelling distinctive of God's church who reflects the kind of love that God has for his people through their love for one another. So we return, we worship, and we reflect a God who lavishes love on his people the way Hosea does Gomer. Before we conclude and sing, let me invite you to, to kind of block out some distractions, just still yourself, maybe close your eyes. As we pray and reflect on this drip of the gospel picture that we see, we've seen this morning, my, my guess is that for some of you, the reality is you're, you're finding that your cisterns are broken, that the false lovers aren't providing the things that you thought they were. Be reminded this morning that that's God's kindness to you. And use the space that he's allotted to, uh, to return, to confess your sin, to confess your belief in the unfailing love of God, to reflect on the beauty of Jesus who took the punishment, he took the stoning that your sins deserved, and return to a God who, who loves you, the way Hosea loves Gomer. And perhaps you're here this morning and, and you just need, like we all do, consistent reminders of the truth of the gospel. We all drift towards this religious behaviorism that says if I do better, God's pleased with me. Would you this morning be reminded that God's pleased with you not because you're doing better, but because of what he accomplished through Jesus. And would that prompt your heart to worship? And then perhaps there's confession around the frail nature of your love and faithfulness to others. People that you've written off, wounds that you have not forgiven, that are a poor reflection of the love that God has for you in Christ. Maybe that's even the person sitting next to you that you can uh, reach over to and pray with that your relationship would be a reflection of the beauty of the gospel. As we stand and sing in just a few minutes after a moment of silence and reflection, I invite you to join as we reflect on uh, the beauty of a God who loves us with this type of great love. <laughs>